Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall, and I am delighted delighted to be joined by Mark Wunderlich, whose latest book is The Earth of Veils, um, out by Grey Wolf. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, excellent. So I was recently in an interview. Somebody asked me what I thought was like, hands down, like a great book I was reading, and yours definitely was the first to come to mind. It's really just one of the one of the best books I've just read in a long time. It really just spoke to me. But before we get into it, um, I definitely wanted to back up. And, well, I feel like I've learned a lot about you, whether through your books or prior interviews. Um, I really don't know anything about, like, uh, like exactly where your childhood took place. I know it was in Wisconsin. But can you talk about your childhood, where you grew up, where you were raised, and also about your family? Sure. Um, I grew up in a very small town in uh, southwestern Wisconsin uh, called Fountain City, and um, it's uh, not the closest sizable town is Winona, Minnesota, so um, it's right on the banks of the Mississippi River, and um, the town is about 700, a population of about 700 people, and um, I think at its sort of highest it was maybe about 1200 and back at 700 now so it's a it's a very small town and has consistently been small um it's a primarily a, a farming community um and uh my family has lived in this area in this part of Wisconsin I think since the 1830s mm-hmm. so um you know uh there were wanderlicks who founded the town and were some of the first settlers to come and build there. And so my family's been in the area for a really long time um, since, you know, my, my, my father's family since they um, immigrated from Germany. And, um, but my immediate family's very small. Um, mm-hmm. I have one brother and uh, my mom and my dad. I grew up on a, on a farm uh, there, uh, though my, my father was really only a part-time farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so it was a kind of, um, you know, my grandparents lived nearby and some other relatives, but my family remained small and is getting even smaller. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, is your brother, uh, is he younger or older than you? Um, he's three years older and he lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh, does he? Yeah. Do you uh, see him often or? Um, not that often, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, now it's really just uh, holidays, typically. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's it seems you know more and more rare that the whole family gets together. Yeah, isn't yeah? That's definitely uh, <laughs> that's definitely true. So I'm curious. I'm going to like really fast forward and jump right into kind of you know what we share in common is uh, time at Columbia and coming from that. Um, such a rural background, is that what drew you particularly to New York City to do graduate work there, or did you already kind of have experience in urban centers before reaching New York City? You know, I really, I really didn't. Um, I, I, I think the, boy, you know, I, I graduated from college, I went to the University of Wisconsin, yeah. and I graduated from college. Uh, you know, Madison seemed like a big <laughs> cosmopolitan place to yeah. me, and in many ways, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a really big college town. Yeah. It is sophisticated, yeah. but my own experience of urban places 
I, you know, I hadn't, until I moved there, I had visited New York City once. I had been to Chicago a handful of times. I, you know, knew Minneapolis. I'd been to Berlin when I was in a high school German club. But it really, I had no experience of living in a city. Right. And uh, when I was, you know, 21, I had managed to save $700. <laughs> and I bought a one-way plane ticket to New York City, and I thought, you know, what could what could possibly go wrong? I have $700. You're loaded. You know, <laughs> I'll be fine. Um, and it, in fact, I was. You know, so I moved there in, uh, I think it was January of 1992. Wow. And, um, and I worked in, in New York for a while uh, before I started Columbia, before I went to graduate school there. Yeah. And what, uh, you know, what was that kind of pivotal moment where you're like, okay, poetry's for me? Did it like occur to you as like a young child or like what kind of was there um, a culture of reading in your house growing up and you naturally gravitated towards books? Um, what kind of how did you kind of, you know, become a reader and then eventually find yourself drawn to poetry? Well, uh, I've, I've always read, uh, as, you know, as far back as I, as I can remember, um, as soon as I was taught, you know, when I was four or five. Um, but my, uh, my mother read to me as a child all the time. I remember my grandmother reading to me. Um, my mother is a big reader. My father, not so much, but, um, so there were books in the house and, um, and I had, you know, I had books in my room as a child, and I was always in them. You know, I, I spent a lot of time there. So reading was definitely um, a part of my experience growing up. You know, the bookmobile would come to town, and yeah. that was on the calendar all the time. It really, <laughs> it really meant a lot to me. You know, yeah. it's, it's um, a, a thing that has changed now that is kind of hard. Sometimes, you know, for my students, it's hard for them to wrap their minds around. It's just thinking about how isolated rural America really was before the internet, you know, wow. I mean, um, I just didn't have access to a lot of things, to information, to books, to, um, other, other sort of viewpoints and opinions. It was, it was much harder to, to get to that. Um, I did not write, I was not one of those kids who was a sort of precocious writer of charming <laughs> poems, you know, right. I, I, that, that never, your parents weren't asking you to read poetry like at dinners or whatever. No, no, <laughs> that was not, that was not it. And in yeah. fact, that kind of, you know, that would have been seen as showing off right. as sort of, uh, as, as a kind of, um, vanity or yeah. something. Um, you know, my family was religious. I, I, I uh, grew up going to church um, weekly, often more than once a week. Yeah, what kind of church? And, um, I was raised in a, basically a kind of bloodless Protestantism. Yes. Um, with its with Calvinist roots. Yes. Um, and uh, you know the it was uh, the United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, it had been a Swiss Reformed Church before yeah. they joined the UCC. So it was, um, it, it was basically harmless. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, I can't say that I, there were, there were, um, 
you know, I read the Bible and, you know, knew the Bible stories and, and that's an enduring, something enduring about it that I'm, that I'm, um, glad I had as part of my experience growing up. Yeah, but, I think that, you know, uh, oh, go ahead. No, well, like, I was going to say, I, you know, I, I, I didn't write as a child as I can remember at all. In fact, I didn't even know, I, I don't know when it dawned on me that there was such a thing <laughs> as a living poet. Right. Um, I, I just don't think that, you know, uh, I, I really thought that that was like being a, you know, I, I think I said somewhere else that it was like, I, I thought it was like being a stagecoach driver or something, right. you know, they <laughs> were so antiquated and out of, out of place. And then when it did, it wasn't really until college that that kind of entered my consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, and at Madison, yeah, it's interesting that you kind of were, immersed in language and and it's funny someone who goes to church growing up while you might be like not fully grasping everything it is based on language and the words so you're constantly awash in a heightened language or a different rhetoric a different sounding rhetoric and it sounds like the church you went to was probably had a deep respect for kind of the literary roots of of the bible and stuff and not so immersed on the idea of um, maybe being saved or personal salvation kind of thing. Um, because I know, yeah, those churches are often, it's hard to distinguish between a sermon and a lecture sometimes, um, yeah. which is, which is can, can be extremely refreshing <laughs> for somebody who's maybe grown up in a different tradition. But it, when you're at Madison, I mean, when was it somebody you met or like when I'm really trying to pinpoint like, when did you decide then to go get an MFA in poetry? Well, let's see. Um, I had been, uh, I, I was a German major, yeah. and um, I had spent actually my freshman year in a, in a language immersion program. Mm. I was part of Concordia College in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota. And, um, and that school was sort of too small for me. I wanted to be... Um, at a bigger place, and I wanted desperately to be anonymous, having never had that experience in my life. So um, then when I transferred to the UW, um, I continued on studying German, and, um, you know, this was a... Uh, I, I loved the study of foreign languages, and, you know, that was something I, I, I was good at it, and, and, um, and, and I liked doing that. But I mm-hmm. needed to take an English... Uh, class as a requirement, and I I ended up registering for uh, like a mixed genre sure. writing workshop. Oh uh, wow! By accident, and um, and I that really that first day uh, in class, um, I, it was just astonishing to me. You know, we read poems on the very first day. I don't think I had ever read a contemporary a poem by a living poet. I, right. I just, I just know it wasn't part of my experience. And it was as though suddenly a language was being spoken that I understood completely. I was so excited by it. Yeah. Um, there was something about the compression and the strangeness of it that really drew me in. And kind of from that moment on, I, I, I didn't, um, I never looked back, you know, I just thought, how do you do this? How do you go about doing this? I remember reading some of the first poets I read. I remember reading, spending a lot of time 
on the biographical notes at the back of the book. Yeah. And looking at the pictures and, you know, at the author photos and reading their bios and thinking, how did they do that? You know, how did they, how did they get to this place where this is what they do? Right. You know, um, that is so interesting. I think that's, I think that's a con, like not common, but an experience for many of us where the poet, be, like, once you unlock that you like this poetry, you're like, how do you go about like fashioning a life around it? You know, yeah, it's really yeah. incredible. And uh, what were your parents thinking at the time? Were they, uh, you know, were they always supportive of this kind of path you were taking? I think that my parents probably had the same sort of concerns um, about this uh, particular path that they had. Um, that, you know, that any, anyone's parents would have in yeah. that they were worried about how I would make a living, you know, yeah. that they're one of their, one of their great concerns and not un, unexpectedly. Um, but they should have been just as concerned of how I would make a living studying German, <laughs> you know, I mean, as it turns out. But that, for some reason, that seemed more, um, that made more sense to them. Yeah. Um, but, but I had, I have always, you know, I've always had a job. I was always working. I was always, you know, doing things. I don't think my parents worried all that much about my ability to make make my own way, yeah. um, and that I would I would figure it out. I think that they are surprised now um, that you know um, that this is kind of what I do for a living. That I teach poems and talk about poems and write poems. And, uh, <laughs> So. Yeah, it could be somewhat bewildering as well. And um, so, of course, and not to, uh, just to get a little more personal, you know, being very open as a gay man, were you, how did this conjoin, you think, where, like, when you're at Madison, were you already, like, completely out? Or because your first book is obviously, like, really, you know, really, like, diving into these subjects. I'm wondering where you are in your personal life. Were you, like, were you openly gay in your hometown in that rural setting i think i'm really curious about that um no i was not uh not as a teenager right although um i was certainly identified that way by other people you know i mean i I, um with with (laughs) um i i was you know you would say certainly I, i i mean i'm very resistant to this kind of narrative of you know, you're you're sort of bullied as a as a gay person growing up. You get bullied, and right. then you escape to a city. And you know, I mean, it's it's. I know. I hear you. Say. I totally agree. But I, I I certainly was bullied. You know, I ha- yeah. I have to say I, I really I really was. My high school experience was rough. It was. And um and I went to kindergarten through twelfth grade with the same sixty some students. You know, the same people. For 13 years, oh we were together um, in this cons- rural consolidated school. Yeah, and um, you know, and um, I I rebelled. I think in my own way when I was in in high school. Yeah, I was a bit of a goth. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the 80s. Yeah, and um, and in that way, I ended up standing out and targeting myself even more. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I was to blame for it, but I didn't make things any easier for myself. I hear you. Um, yeah. 
That said, you know, I don't think um, I, I didn't really kind of fully come out until I was in college. Yeah. My freshman year, uh, yeah, I, you know, you sort of step in and out a little bit. By the time I was a sophomore, I sure. was, I had busted out. And um, uh, while well, I was at Madison, I moved into an apartment, and my next door neighbor was Dan Savage. Hmm. Um, and Dan and I became friends. <laughs> and he, he was um, started the Madison chapter of Act Up. And <laughs> I was like, if you're going to meet anybody that's going to make that transition uh, smooth, it's probably him. <laughs> it was really, it's true, you know. So he was really much a very much a part of that, you know, kind of seeing, um, you know, Dan's a little older than I am, but yeah. just seeing how uh, he was and 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 kind of throwing myself into uh, different kinds of activism, things right. like that. So by that point, I was I was out and not going back. Yeah, and was the reaction from your parents kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, we already knew that? Or like, you know, was it pretty supportive? Or did it cause any, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't know how I think parents internalize these things. You know? Yeah, it was actually a little rough. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that... Uh, you know, I think it was particularly difficult for my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that um, for a while there was a, a period of time where they didn't really, I wouldn't say that I was sort of completely rejected by them, but right. they were pretty yeah. cold. Kind know? of freaked and out. <laughs> they were freaked out and they they distanced themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm wondering sometimes because um, in instances like that, a lot of times when I think parents, something happens with their child that disrupts whatever their conception of the child was, that they often, often the experience is happening suddenly to them and they alienate the child who is actually at the center of of the trauma almost, you know, like, yeah. and and some parents, I don't know, I think they react, oh, how, oh, this is happening to me, instead of maybe yeah. thinking it was happening to you, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is very, uh, I can totally sympathize. That was very hard um, to go through when the people, we, <laughs> our parents that we look to these, you know, these great well, grand figures in our life suddenly act, yeah. act, we confuse them or something. Yeah. I think that's really, you know, I, that's really true. I will say, you know, if I were going to look for a sort of upshot of that experience mm-hmm. is that in a lot of ways, it really, it, it set me free. Right. And, um, and I mean that in that I realized that I, I did have to make my own way and that I was going to, there, there might be something about me, something very essential about my character, about my personality, my psyche, my makeup that um that that my parents might reject and that the people who you know were around me um and were t- were were you know who who I expected would love me unconditionally it turns out that there might be some conditions yeah. and that is a hard lesson um but it was one that made me um you know it it made me grow up yeah. It made me um it, it it made me be a lot more independent. 
Yes. And to it gave me permission to make decisions for myself in ways that sometimes, you know, one of the things that, that you get or, you know, now I suppose there are parents who are very understanding about their gay children and sure. just the same as, as anyone. But I uh-huh. think the experience that I had and that other, you know, gay and lesbian people of my generation who I know who've had similar experiences, they talk about how, you know, once you sort of horrify your parents, there's nothing else, you know, there's kind of nothing else. I know to do. So you know, true. you can, you you have permission <laughs> to kind of do whatever it is you're going to do and to live your life. And I have friends who are, you know, heterosexual friends who are more conventional who are sometimes in relationships where they feel very beholden to pleasing their parents right. well into their adulthood that they need to have the oh, I think uh, that's kind of marriage and that's absolutely you know, true. Yeah, and I think some I bet some people even you know even fantasize about the passing of their parents even to set them free, not in a cold, you know, psychotic way, but in a way like if those intrusive thoughts of feeling like I'm not going to be able to be myself until maybe they're like gone. (laughs) So I think you're right to have that kind of traumatic, maybe that, that break early in one's life. And at the same time, what we want from our parents is just, we just merely want to be loved as who we truly are, (laughs) no, no matter who you are. And, uh, and I think you're right in many ways, one's sexuality and one's relationship with the family pushes that envelope maybe quicker than yeah. maybe some other people. So, yeah, yeah it's really fascinating. Uh, um, you know, that oh, said, I will just follow it up and say that, you know, I, my, my relationship with my family now is very, you know, with my, my parents is, is really very good. Right. And um, it is, you know, um, people change. Uh, they really do, and mm-hmm. and our relationships with each other change. Um, everybody's getting older. Um, I have a much happier, uh, a really kind of happy, lovely relationship with my parents now. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say that it has a happy ending. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I think that's uh, I think that's really a key. What you said that uh, I think sometimes the parents seem like unchanging monoliths, and in fact. Even parents and I think a misperception of even older people is that they have these very static interior lives and that they're not up for change or and in fact, their interior lives are just as in flux and dynamic as they were when they were young. So, uh, I mean, maybe some things have cemented beyond movement, but I don't know. So moving back. So you're in Madison and you're kind of sounding like you're you're coming into your own identity at the same time you're kind of discovering poetry. And then, so you decide to move to New York at around that. So you had a couple of years in Madison with poetry and kind of like really cementing who you were as a person. And then you get to New York is, uh, how did that impact you? I know we've already talked about it a little. So you were like 21. You decide to go to Columbia and did you apply anywhere else or was that pretty much you knew you wanted to go there? I did. I applied to three places. Um, when I, when I was looking to, to go to a graduate program, I applied to Columbia, which was where I wanted to go above all other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was always at the top of my list. Yeah. Then I applied to NYU, um, yeah. which I was also interested in. And then as kind of a wild card, I applied to the University of Oregon, wow. and 
Um, and when the um, letters came in, I was waitlisted at NYU. I got into Columbia, um, but I got into the U of O and I received a, um, a full tuition, a full package. Oh my God. That must have been so. (laughs) Yeah. So go ahead. Well, so I ended up, um, I really, really, as I said, I really wanted to stay in New York and go to Columbia, and I made a bad decision. Yeah. I um, I accepted the University of Oregon. Really? And um, yep. Wow. And I got all the way. I'm I left New York City. I rented an apartment in Eugene. Oh my god. <laughs> I drove with my things to my parents' house. And, um, and then I was going to have, uh, it was, you know, uh, joining, a, a some other things were going on a truck that was going out there Yeah. and I was in my parents' driveway in my car, uh, ready to go. And I, um, I just turned off the car engine and I didn't go. Yeah. I thought I can't do this. I don't, I do, I'm doing, I'm making the wrong decision. Right. I want to go to Oregon. So I called um, out there and told them I wasn't coming, and I I invoked the fury of Garrett Hongo, who was <laughs> directing the program. Oh who's still, I'm sure, still. Uh, I hope he's gotten over it now. I think he <laughs> should probably not be too angry at a 21 year old who made an impulsive decision. True. But um, uh, but yeah, I I turned around and I went back to New York City. And at this time, I had given up. Um, you know, I had told Columbia I wasn't coming, and um, oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> like wait, and, but I yes, but so I did. I did. Um, I had been working, so I, I moved to New York City, and I got hired um, by uh, the Academy of American Poets. Nice. And so I worked there. That was my first job out of college. Yeah, and I I worked there as the office gopher basically. Sure. Um, for the you know year and a half uh, before I I you know went got into grad school, oh, and wow. I called Bill Wadsworth when after I had given up U of O, I called Bill Wadsworth who was the director of the academy, and I told him what I had done, and I asked if I could have my job back. Yeah. And he said no. <laughs> he said no. You can't have your job back. You gave your job up. Oh, um, he's like. The only way, so the only way I could hire you back is if I, I could hire you as an intern if you were at Columbia in the MFA program. And I said, I told him no, I gave that up. And he said, well, let me make a phone call. So he called, um, up to Columbia where he also had gone and they said, um, I could have my spot back. Oh my God. <laughs> so I turned around, I moved back to New York City, I enrolled at Columbia and, um, and I, I kept working at the academy, and I was so happy with that decision. It was really the right thing to do. Definitely, wow, that is an amazing story. And uh, who were some of the uh, who were some of the poets that you worked? Uh, not the teachers, but fellow students, because I think you were. You know, it's amazing to look at like different like chunks of time through that program. And to see, I know when I was there, I was looking back, you know, at like these different little 
generational pods of people that had gone through there. And it was really incredible. And I was just wondering, like, you know, who was there? Uh, who were you sitting next to in a workshop? Yeah, um, I remember having uh, one workshop uh, with uh, Claudia Rankin, mm-hmm. uh, Christine Hume, Ben Downing, David Yezzi. Um, there were at least those four, if yeah. not Hightower, um, all people who've gone on to, you know, to have books and to publish. And, um, and so we were, um, you know, we were together. And then a little later on, um, though I didn't fully overlap with them, they were just like a year behind me. Um, there were people like Brenda Shaughnessy and Tracy Smith. Sure. And Tim Donnelly and Mary Jo Bang. Um, so there was a another kind of um, you know these are were the were some of the poets of my generation yeah. who um, were around Columbia at that time. And, yeah, and it's really it was really exciting. Yeah, definitely, and the kind of just uh, the aesthetic styles that end up coming through there are pretty divergent. And I think that says a lot about the program. Um, was it ultimately a really good experience for you? Was it challenging in any way? Did it push buttons for you in any way? Or did you really were, you were like locked in and loving it? I, um, it was challenging, but I really did love it. I, you know, I, at the first year, I think I had a pretty typical experience um, to a lot of students in graduate writing programs where I was just kind of clueless and yeah. wasn't writing all that well and, you know, was going through these the paces. And it wasn't until the very last uh, workshop session in my first year that I wrote a poem that I thought kind of um, uh, it, it signaled a change. And sure. that was the kind of work I wanted to write. And that was a workshop... Um, J.D. McClatchy was the teacher, and mm-hmm. he 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 did this thing where he sort of tapped the paper with his finger. I remember it, and he said that this is huh. you know, this is the this is the real thing. Right yeah, here. you just you just crossed over and you've written something, you know, yeah. something worthwhile. And I remember that yeah. know, really really distinctly. Yeah, that is. I was going to ask you, kind of like one of those moments. I think like a lot of poets have, where they're like. You know, they, that little, one little moment of like great confidence building where somebody either gives you a yes or maybe it's somebody publishes a poem finally, but that moment when he kind of tapped the paper, I'm like, yes, Mark, you, you're starting to you start, you're heading in the yeah. right direction with this. Um, yeah. And I know you've been interviewed about your first book quite a, quite a bit. And I loved how you talked candidly about just your general ambition and that kind of like manic process of like, trying to get your work constantly in circulation. And it was really like a real pleasure to hear somebody speak so candidly about like at the end of the day, we just, we long for certain types of fame or we long for certain recognition and stamps of approval, whether we like to be all tough and independent, we still, we still uh, in many ways, uh, a part of us wants to boast to ourselves. And it's funny that you talked about, earlier in your childhood, how showing off your skills might be a form of boasting. And now we live in a culture with uh, social media where boasting is ubiquitous and reflexive. And, uh, and when your first book came out, I'm not, 
I'm trying to remember the year, but you know, the internet was nothing like it was now. It's very interesting to think about. But you know, I want to. One of the things that is being said about the Earth of Veils is that it's such a distinct departure from the first two books. Um, can and I like. I think I read an interview where you were kind of discussing whether it was like male gayness or homosexuality in popular culture and how I think once the markets or popular culture kind of latch on to concepts of sexuality, they end up framing it in very hackneyed, sterile ways. And in the interview, I thought you were so dead on, like until pop culture really like tackles sodomy and that like guys fucking each other, like it's always going to be this kind of sanitized version in the market. And it reminds me of like constantly, like for the last five years, the, the hyper stylized, perfected, like a uh, lesbian sex scene you see in movies. Now it's like an obligatory lesbian plot going on always. Yeah. Um, and I was really surprised by your comments about like the push towards, you know, whether it was like, I think what you were saying is we've kind of lost like in our culture, the idea of gayness as like a, a subversive kind of thing. And it's, more about acceptance or something. And and I wonder if you want to speak to that for a second. Yeah, well, you know, as long as um, it, it, popular culture, the, the, one of the key words there is popular. Right. It means that it, it appeals to, the, the point of popular culture is to have it appeal to the, the, the largest audience possible. Right. And, you know, the... Um, uh, like gay people are always going to be a minority. I, that it's a it's a static number. It doesn't grow. Right. You know, it it just remains the same. And so, whenever you have depictions of homosexuality happening in the in in you know popular culture, it's going to be geared and created <laughs> both by and for heterosexual consumption. Right. And so, you know, you can have um uh gay people producing that work but they are just as likely to be trying to make it palatable to a, to the mainstream yeah. and i think that you know i i find myself really startled and surprised at the i mean i guess i shouldn't be um but but i i'm i'm I guess I, I, I'm still bewildered by the great push for um, for gay marriage, right. as opposed to even you know um, wanting to expand the rights in domestic partnerships, or or even I think even more progressive, um, getting rid of marriage altogether. You know, right. why is marriage this privileged institution? I mean, we right. understand why it is the cultural root, but it's so it's so inherently conservative an institution right. and that here you have uh, this this minority that has been on the, the the kind of outskirts on the margins for so long trying so desperately to be included in it and I, the analogy I always think of is it's is it similar to be you know to, to lobbying for an, to be allowed into the country club right um, it's I don't I don't want to be part of the country club. <laughs> right. The very you know? premise of the country club might be disgusting. So, I mean, I guess the only argument is once once a marginalized group is in there, they can start renovating it somehow. You know what I mean? Like changing it. But I hear that 
I hear in your voice that you're kind of like want to call bullshit on it in a way. <laughs> like, it's yeah, that, I, I mean, I think you're suspicious of the impulse at least, you know. Well, one of the things that you you know people say that they want acknowledgement, they want their relationships to be acknowledged publicly, right. and I, I just keep thinking, why? <laughs> you know, why do you want the heterosexual public to acknowledge your relationship, to acknowledge right. that you are, you know, that you are worthy? I mean, it makes me feel a little sad for those relationships that you need to have it acknowledged in some sort of public way. Right. I don't, you know. I mean, I. I, I, I don't have that impulse, yeah. but I suppose I should probably, you know, um, I, 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 I'm beginning to feel. The other thing that I think is ha- probably going to happen is there's going to be a, groups of, you know, of gay and lesbian people who are not, not who are choosing not to be part of that, and it's going to be similar to the way single people you know, single heterosexual people are viewed in a culture where marriage is this sort of privileged institution where you're seen as being, you know, a kind of outsider, maybe even pitiable in some cases. (laughs) And, And I think that that's, you know, we had an opportunity, I think, to offer alternatives to these, this very conservative institution. And I think we kind of blew it. Right. Um, I don't think gay people are going to change the institution of marriage. Right. Um, I, I, I just don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think, I think, um, you know, I, I think that the institution of marriage is going to support, in our culture, is going to continue to support the state and it's going to continue to support a consumer culture and it's going to continue to support all of the things that it does. But, you know, it's, it's not going to be, um, this isn't, it isn't going to make anyone freer. Uh, I hear um, it. No, that's fair. It seems like, yeah, I mean, the premise of this kind of movement is it has been established by someone else's narratives who you claim not to share their values. <laughs> so I'm wondering if, if those feelings and those kind of ideas, did they manifest themselves or, or did they like express themselves in, in any way, say, in your first two books? Or was that primarily like, and hyper individualistic kind of uh thing you brought to those to those books and then speak well, and speak of this perception that the earth avails is a departure from those two yeah well you know i think that um my first book um it feels kind of like ancient history to me yeah. that book was written in my 20s you sure. know and and it it represents for me it really represents a very specific period of time the thing that was different, um, certainly in the first book, um, that book was written at the height of the AIDS crisis, right. and that was one of the real things that changed my life when I moved to New York. You know, yeah. I, I, in, in one sense, I was raised to kind of think of myself as this, um, you know, as a as a prince temporarily on loan to planet Earth, you know, I mean, that was one thing. And then I moved to New York City and I moved into an apartment in the East Village and I saw, you know, men my age in wheelchairs and I saw the the kind of crack had just come into the East Village. The Tompkins Square Park had just been closed. There had been riots. I, I was there when they drove a tank down 13th Street, oh, you know, to sort of deal with the with the kind of crime and the the, the takeover of a house by 
um, drug dealers that had happened there. There was a black market selling stolen goods on the street every sure. night. There was incredible homelessness. Uh. It was a it was a blasted neighborhood, and that's where I found myself. And I was had suddenly gone from, you know, um, this this kid from a farm to a, just another homo living in the East Village who. Right in the Reagan era was by a good deal of the, of the um, dominant culture was seen as disposable. Right. And, um, and that was such a shock to me to find myself in that position. Hmm. That, that was, that was, you know, and it changed me. It changed me forever. You yeah. know, it's knowing people who died of that terrible disease. Um, it was, you know, and, and living in that culture during that period of time, really did um, change me. And I think that a lot of that first book is thinking about that, reacting to it, looking at it. And in, in a way, you know, so many of those poems are addressed to this missing second person. Sure. I think at the center of that book is a, is a sort of missing beloved, is yeah. the other who is yeah. gone, who has departed. And that, that was really, I think, for me, a reaction to that particular time. Yeah. My yeah. second book... Is a kind of, um, you know, it, it explores. Um, I, in some ways, I think the, these three books have been kind of a trajectory. I think it goes. The second book is halfway between the first one and the new one. And but it, I wanted to divorce myself from the kind of confident voice that happened in that first book. And when yeah. I when I started finally working on um, voluntary servitude, I I was sort of horrified by the by the way in which the speaker in the first in my first book um was so confident and bold <laughs> and seemed to know uh things and yeah. I, in my in my 30s I think I realized that there's so much I didn't know yeah it was um it it ended up being really different and I wanted to write poems that um you know, weren't as, um, I, I wanted them to kind of subvert some of the structures and things that I had done in the first book as well. Yeah. I think the new book is different in that it's not about sex right. <laughs> in the way that the first two books were. Um, I, you know, this is the, the Earth Wait. of Ales is the book of my mid forties. <laughs> right. And I think, I think, I heard and sorry to interrupt, but it was interesting because at first, I think you know I read where you said like really taking on kind of the frame, uh, kind of channeling kind of the forms of religion and faith, despite you know despite being whether an atheist or not, extremely locked into spirituality. But that I thought it was interesting that in the conversation I read that you talked about where gayness had once been subversive and is now trying to be appropriated by whether it's market forces to, towards a heterosexual consumer to the idea that speaking in the voice of a certain spirituality or faith would be equally as subversive and then really I mean compounded I think with with the physical settings of your poems I think that you say like when you get to your 40s it's kind of like you know the the t- if we just frame our lives in decades rather than maybe events, 
you know, the forties can be a tremendously like sobering kind of liberating time of just kind of knowing oneself. The wrestling is maybe different. And yet this book seems just as volatile. And yet you're doing it through the framework, a religious framework. And, uh, and I was wondering how, how did you reconcile maybe not sharing the beliefs, these religious beliefs, but finding a cadence or a, or a voice in it? You know, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I started working on this book um, around the same time that I uh, moved to uh, rural upstate New York. And um, my uh, former partner and I bought a, this very old house. And we started this uh, process about 300 years old. It was built by a Dutch farmer in, around... Um, 1715, and um, wow. and we began this process. It was a wreck, you know, yeah. uh, when we bought it, and we began uh, kind of slowly and uh, uh, renovating it and um, and and trying to bring it back to life. Um, you know, we did a lot of that. Uh, much of the work we did ourselves, and um, and so I found myself kind of sifting through these various layers of history as we worked, you know, as we peeled back the different yes. layers of the house to try and get it back to its original state in some ways. Yeah. And um, and I became very curious about the people who had lived here and uh, who had built the house and what their lives had been like. And, and so I began kind of researching the material culture of that, mm -hmm. of this place and time period. And I came across a... Um, a family Bible in a local history archive, a wow. Bible that had been attached to the family. And in it, I found this document, which was called a heaven letter. And it, this one was printed in German and it was a kind of like a house blessing. Um, and it was full of various sort of admonitions or advice. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I was immediately drawn to it and interested in it. And I copied it down. And in doing that, I, I, as I looked at it and thought about it, I thought, oh, I, I should see if I could just adapt this into something contemporary. What would yeah. that sound like? Yeah. And, and it was just an experiment, something I thought that would be fun to do. Um, and so I, I did that. And then I started looking for more of these documents, and I found them. Um, then when I was home at my parents' house in Wisconsin, I found this Bible, uh, a, a little prayer book. Um, mm -hmm. and published in the 19th century, so in the around 1870, and it was also in German, and it um, and it struck me as this kind of compendium of of anxieties, you yeah. know, of uh, the kind of fears. Each of the poems were very or the prayers were very specific, like a prayer to be said at a harvest, a prayer to be said. Uh, at a sick bed, a prayer to be said, you know, before a journey by sea. And so I began again that process of adapting them and, and seeing if I could bring them into a kind of contemporary milieu and have them reflect things about my own life. Um, I was struck with both of these things by the voice, um, by that kind of supplicant voice yeah. that is both sometimes, you know, equal parts praising um, uh, and complaining. 
um, and begging. You know, I mean, those are kind of the three. I think it is the three different registers for prayers. (laughs) It's really wild, yeah. The the but the I think the important thing about this is the the connection I think that I made was um, with this book at my parents' house. This had belonged to some relative. You know, and and um, and this reflected in in some way their belief, and in adapting it, I wanted it both to have certain notes, certain. I found myself bringing a kind of archaic diction into yeah. play, but I also wanted it to be contemporary. So I feel like it. I wanted to kind of flip back and forth between the the old and the new. Yeah. Um, but I felt like I was somehow connecting with this ancestral past. Right. And I think what I've been really aware of in recent years is that I'm my connection to this place where I grew up, which is very vivid to me, very, you know, there's a kind of family mythology that goes back generations that I've been told ever since I can remember. And I no longer live there. I'm not going to live there. There are no children in my family um my parents will um live out their days there but that's going to be the last generation isn't that family. something yeah yeah it's really so, incredible i think uh sorry to interrupt but i think one you're describing i think is just a wonderful you almost sound like a, a like a the create the sleuth aspect of the creative process that started with the the reconstruction of your house and then and kind of organically Figuring out, I don't know. It's interesting. I just think about where you are in your life right now, what I've heard so far, and 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 that you're, you know, in your early 40s, and that it's a time in one's life, I think, um, where in many ways that interior work that you've been mining all along, like the labor of that of that interior work, starts to pay off, and one starts to want to connect to a broader narrative and that tends to drive one back into excavating generationally beyond yourself and what an exciting process that that is and that you can recognize the family in your hometown that that's the last of the generation that you're connecting in this whole new way into who you are as a person and how satisfying that must have felt and organically right it felt to start that process. Um, yeah, you know, I think that I didn't really, it, it sort of, I, I remember beginning to write some of these poems and I was very uncertain. I just didn't know if they were any good, if yeah. they were viable as poems. I, it, it didn't, I didn't really know, but I, I liked the process I liked this adaptive process very much, and I just yeah. wanted to keep doing it. And eventually it began to kind of coalesce, and it, it, be, be, it started to make sense to me as a book. Yeah, that's interesting, like, as you're working on it. And it was nice to hear that you're still, like, even after kind of being somewhat, you know, an established poet, that you're writing new poems and you still feel vulnerable about whether they're working or not, which is really kind of refreshing to hear. And then at some point that process... That process started, uh, the idea of a book in this mode started emerging. I was wondering if you could talk real quick. I really tried to wrap my head around the title of this book. And, and the use of the word avails is so, at times, 
I'm locked into what it what I think it's intended to mean in the title, and then other times I'm completely baffled. I was wondering if you could just kind of explain what it maybe means to you, and and was it a title you came up with, or was it an editorial suggestion? Um, it was a title that I came up with, and um, I guess I don't really remember the moment um, I arrived at it. I do. Um, I had spent some time reading. I, I, I was interested in the. Um, I was reading some of the early Anglo-Saxon uh, literature, so you know the old, old English literature, and I became quite fascinated. I think I arrived at these because of the. The, these sort of house blessings and the heaven letter poems that I became kind of curious about uh, spells and um, what those were as a kind of literary form. Right. And I, I, I found this group of poems in the uh, old Anglo-Saxon that were um, uh, that are treated sometimes as a kind of curiosity, but um, are different spells. One is for um, it's a spell against an imp. There's nice. another one that's a spell <laughs> against a, you know, a tumor, a wen on a, on a cow. Um, awesome. and then there's one that is a sort of a spell that is meant to, um, prevent bees from swarming. And, and I'm a, I'm a beekeeper. I, I, I have bees and I, um, and so I was drawn to this one and the, yeah. the, Poem or the, this this uh, it's called the Anglo-Saxon bee charm is usually yeah. how it's what how it's referred to. Um, it it says it you know it calls the the bees um, uh, warrior women hmm. and it says you know it's it, it says to prevent your bees from swarming and leaving the hive uh, pick up a handful of the earth and toss it over the bees and say this following charm wow. and they'll return to the hive. And it says, you know, warrior women, don't fly into the woods. Be mindful of my, you know, of of my needs too. And um, and then you throw the handful of dirt, and it says, um, you know, the earth avails against all creatures and against injury and against right. forgetfulness and against the mighty tongue of man. And mm. that last part, I was so struck by this notion of the earth. Um, the earth is going to outlast us. It's going to, it conquers everything. Right. Everything that, um, you know, happens in this world is of the, you know, is, is of the earth. Yes. And we can have designs and, you know, and, and things that we want to do, but the, the earth is going to outlast us all. I think the other thing that is often on my mind is the, the terrible state of um, environmental degradation that yeah. we have found ourselves in, and it's in the way in which it's causing climate change. Yeah, um, climate change to me is just the it, it's it's so um, it's so difficult to wrap your mind around because we experience everything. Locally and daily, and I think that's so true. And it, and yet we have the ability to understand the scale of this problem. And everyone in in you know in the world has now experienced this this the kind of volatile yeah. weather and the storms and the shifting weather patterns. And um, 
And this is just, I think that, (laughs) you know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's, the earth is going to win out, you know, we're, we're going to wreck it for ourselves <laughs> and we're going to take, and we're going to take a lot of species down with yeah. us, but the earth is going to just be fine. It's just, yeah. you know, it's going to change, it's gonna, but yeah. we're the ones who are going to be wrecked. Right. You know? And it, it's so sad so. because it doesn't, it's a reflection of the worst angels of our nature, you know, and not, and not the better ones, which are that we have knowledge of it. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting too. I think you're exactly right that it doesn't have <clears throat> like a visible, noticeable daily impact on our, our lives. And in many ways, we've defanged nature to the point that we don't even have to look at it anymore. And it's almost kind of an idea about the sublime and that it doesn't cause us any pain and therefore we, we discard it or resent it because we're so insulated from the impact of our own, uh, the consequences of our own actions upon it that you're right. It's like we need to, and even with these kind of uh, strange, you know, weather systems that we've been enduring a lot, people, it reminds me of almost that the disenchantment of say believing. It's funny because it, it's, I don't know. I'm just making this parallel in real time that you're drawn to these poems of spells and kind of enchantment. And in many ways, people can't believe in that anymore because they've kind of buffered themselves from seeing themselves as a part of this enchanted narrative that used to be spirituality or God or fairies or, or, you know, spirits or angels or whatever it was. We are like, whoa, that's, we're totally not part of that. And in any, in many ways, that disenchantment has now carried over in in some weird way to the ecology around us that it's as it's as not real as God is to us or something. It's really fascinating. And in many ways, I am just having this thought because you inspired it, is that your book is kind of taking both these ideas of of this kind of remote God and this and this remote ecology and what your poems are doing in the earth of ales is forcing those two to come to a head. And it's really, I think that's what in many ways is so powerful about this book is that you're forcing us to consider things we don't believe in anymore and founding such a genuine voice in that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Just, I think that's so where a lot of the power of your poems in this book are coming from that you've, you've taken two things we've lost faith in and have combined them into a singular speaker. Um, Mark, do you have anything to say about that? (laughs) (laughs) That hasn't, that hasn't occurred to me. I guess it hasn't occurred to me either. (laughs) (laughs) I I think uh, in this case, I'm the bug and not the entomologist. So um, (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny, you know, you write the book and then as you have to talk about it more, and, you know, I've been going around and reading from it quite a bit. I, I'm starting to figure things out about about the book. And I've gotten a couple of reviews um, so far that have actually um, that, that I was very pleased with. And, and 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 they helped me kind of articulate and think about what what this what this book is. I think but I think. Oh, go ahead. You know, part of you know, part of, of putting together a book of poems is that you you're you're both. I I think one has to try it has to be kind of naive yeah. um about it at some point too so that you can allow accidents to happen. Yeah. I was compelled to write these poems 
because I was compelled to write these poems, not because I had a larger design in mind of what it was I was interested in, but I, right. I do understand my obsessions, um, how I was looking at the world, the way in which I was, you know, in, engaged with the, with life in the country again, the way I was thinking about my very rural upbringing in the Midwest, um, uh, the, the way in which I'm kind of viewing mortality in my middle mm-hmm. years and the, the sort of sense of the kind of fraying connection with the family history. And all of those things seem to me to be kind of coming together. Um, and, and I think I it takes a, poems. yeah, it takes a lot of, I think for any artist or poet, um, because I think you're right, we're, you know, the poet is the bug, not the entomologist. And that it takes like a lot of, I think a lot of confidence to just trust where you need to be taken with your poetry. And then, yeah, it comes naturally in retrospect. Once the books out there, the poems are out there that people are, are the entomologist. They're going to kind of see all kinds of things in your work. Um, do you think that's a, like, that's okay that like, I mean, not okay, but like, it's, it is interesting how you said, like, now that the book's been published and you're kind of like hearing different thoughts about it, that it sort of illuminates things that in the act of composition, you're of course not considering, you know? And I think that's, yeah. it's a lot of dynamism there and, and probably gets into some very complicated and intentional theories or whatever, but enough yeah. of, enough of being the entomologist. Let's, let's dive into some of these poems and, uh, and hear some of them. Um, do you have your book right there? Yes, I do. Um, so I, I wanted you to read a few poems I've been dying to hear you read, and they're probably odd little choices maybe, but this little poem, Sand Shark, I was always taken with. One, because sharks don't typically occur on farms, and, <laughs> and I was taken with the shark's response to what was happening to it. I was wondering if you could read it, and if you have anything to say about it. Sure. Um, it, it, the one thing that I would say, this, this, uh, this poem is a bit of a throwback to, uh, the time, uh, when I lived on Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, you know, about an experience that I had there. So I'll, I'll go, I'll read it. Okay. Sand Shark. It rose up, nosing from the bottom of the bay, hook in its mouth, slothful, circling in a whirl through murk, salt, krill. It pulled at the line, but did not fight. No fit as I turned the reel. Long as my arm, it countered clockwise as I drew it. Slick thought up from the dark reach of green and mollusk bed, up from where it fed on what dropped down, what fell to the wavering floor. In my shock, I wondered whether to cut the line or to pry hook and lure from its throat from between the needled snags of its mouth, designed to hold all that entered and ferry it to the red chambers of its gut. I cut the line, nudged the sluggish creature with my foot, and slipped it back into the bay, its appetite torn by the barb of my hook. My hands were slicked with blood and slime, and though I washed, its briny tang clung to me for a time. Oh, all right, thanks. That is so amazing. Especially the end. My hands were slicked with blood and so I'm like, 
and that briny taint. Oh my god. So, you know, your work is so um you know, your your eye is something to definitely endure and it's interesting your fidelity to to the image and you seem to understand that that description yields, you know, so much it it does so much work <laughs> without you even knowing it. And throughout this book, your fidelity to the grim imagery is is um just so utterly compelling because it gets through the illusions of so much of our lives, especially, you know, in modernity and, and especially when it's encountered in nature like this. Um, but the sand shark, I thought it was interesting because I'm going to have you read Ram in a moment. And in Ram, we see a creature who is defiant towards the human where the sand shark seemed uh, apathetic and at repose in what was happening to it. And I thought in many ways, your book is, is teaching us different ways we, we respond to pain and and suffering in many ways um so if you don't mind i'd love to see that contrast and the wonderful poem it's one of my favorites ram if you don't mind reading it sure ram he stands stamping in the pasture angry that i've come angry that i didn't come sooner with my pail of grain a top notch of wool shields his eyes snagged with bits of hay bunched with burrs. He shakes his head, flares nostrils under a Roman nose, curls a lip to show me his single row of teeth like keys of a harpsichord, long, ivory yellow, pegged in a black gum. In snow, he'll stand all day by the hay feeder, fleece parting at the spine, grease saving him from the worst of it, staring into the source of the weather. In April, the shearing team will come and tip him on his rump, ridding him of a year's worth of wool. He'll submit to the indignity, his fleece peeled back in flocculent rolls. Back on all fours, he'll trot off to find his flock, sniff his harem's bare behinds, account for his many lambs that nurse desperately, confused by their mother's altered forms. They call and call while he remains calm, stepping among his kind, assessing the newly naked. Once he knocked me down with a blow to my hip, 300 pounds and a thick skull crashed against my pelvis. Sprawled in the mud and dung, I pulled myself through straw while he backed up for another run. Before he could, I hit him with a broken rail cracked it across his nose. He barely noticed. Now he regards me with golden ovine eyes, rich with a pastoral flame. Oh, thanks. That was excellent. It's such a ruthless, ruthless poem. And especially that he barely noticed, man. When I, I remember first reading that, it was just so devastating. And, uh, you know, the poems, it's interesting the way I think um, just kind of nurturing, violent kind of suggestions of the sexual act kind of permeate throughout this collection. And it, 
it got me thinking, you know, because so many poets, younger poets, are extremely enamored with the impact of technology and social media and putting hashtags before their poem titles, which is all great and fine. And I think, and, and I, I think they, if they're moved to do so, they have to. Were you ever worried that, like, you hear you come out with this very, you know, this book rich in, in, I don't know if you want to call it pastoral imagery, but the rural countryside. Um, you know, and it, clearly you know this world. Um, what was it, you know, what did, it seems that it was just kind of stripped of illusion. And I was wondering, you know, it just seems like a juxtaposition. I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it seems like a juxtaposition yeah. between that the, maybe the urban setting is very enamored with subjectivity and the self where I think when the self is in this kind of environment where there's a constant exchange with the physical world, that the idea of the self is somewhat not as provocative because, because the violence of the physical world reflects and physicalizes the abstraction of the self. And so there's a clarity to your work that is absolutely, I think, seems subversive to today's voice. And it's because there's a real engagement with the environment. There's the proximity between you, the abstract self and the physical is the proximity is almost non-existent. They're right shoulder to shoulder. And I think your poems are so, so keen on, on that. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. It's just really an observation. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess I, I just, I, I keep going back to the, uh, as a poet, I, I guess I'm now mostly interested in describing the world. You yeah. know, I, I, I think that my, my interior life is, is, I suppose, sufficiently interesting, but I don't, you know, I mean, in my first book, it seemed to be, I was so kind of, um, I, I mean, my, my sexuality and my yeah. the sort of placement and realization of my sexuality in a social context was, was fascinating to me and I yeah. thought I would make poems out of it. Um, I, I, I'm not very interested in that anymore at all. That, yeah. you know, my sexuality <laughs> seems like so, um, boring. It, and as one realizes that, you know, I mean, so I'm gay, big deal. It's yeah. not very interesting in and of itself. And, um, but I, I now find myself wanting to write about the physical world yeah. and wanting to describe the natural world. I also, you know, I, I've I've always written. There are animals. I certainly in all three of my books, I've written about them. They've they've been a part of my life. You know, growing yes. up around them. And I I'm as fewer and fewer people have the experience, <laughs> um, you know, in the U.S. of yeah. rural life and of farm life. I see this kind of, um, I'm always struck by, by the depth of people's misunderstanding and their sentimentality when it comes to the places, their conception of where food comes from. Oh my gosh. And the, yeah. and the kind of things that they think, you know, I was in, I sat in on a, on a class, um, uh, in, in which I heard a student report talking about how monstrous, you know, Monsanto is. And how terrible it is that farmers make use of those products. Right. And I was listening to this, and I thought, well, yes, Mon Monsanto is is a, a 
is, you know, is this giant international monstrous corporation that, that produces poisons. But I'll tell you, you know, uh, farmers plant Monsanto seeds because they work. And, you know, there is a sense of that, (laughs) that, that, um, you know, there's a, there's a a way in which people are disconnected from many of the realities of it. I also, you know, my, my interest in writing about animals has to do most people's experience with animals are with companion animals of dogs and cats yes. specifically. And those creatures evolved so differently than did other animals, yeah. and, in, other domestic animals. And they live in our homes now and we sentimentalize them almost exclusively. Yes. And I think that when I think about the other kinds of animals, you know, I mean, the thing that this poem is getting at Here's this ram. This ram is hostile, is dangerous. Um, A lot of domestic animals, they're not, they don't, um, they don't like you. You know, they're not, they don't love you. (laughs) They, they, they're not interested in you. They, they, and yet they, they're indifferent. Um, their, their absolute indifference to our existence, um, is, um, interests me. But I also, they are, um, domestic animals wouldn't exist without us, yeah. you know, and we as a, as a, as an evolved, as people who evolved, we wouldn't exist without them. Mm. Um, so the relationship I think with domestic animals and, and a lot of wild animals is a comp complicated one. And I'm always interested in exploring that. Yeah. I, I think, think that, oh, you know, I, I, I'm interested enough in, in animals to try and see them in their complexity and not as sort of victims of our avaricious, um, you know, and not victims of our appetites. You know, cows are the big evolutionary winner. You know, if you, if we want to talk about that, cows are, you know, cows won in, in terms of evolution. They, Proved themselves to be incredibly useful to human beings and therefore preserved their DNA for all of eternity. <laughs> as long as there are people, there will be cows. I you know? love that you look at it that way. I think everyone has, and, and your comments about Monsanto and stuff that we have, you know, these like little, these narratives that find their way among very smart people and they're kind of based on a semantics of loss and blame. And feelings of out of control. And I think you're kind of so interdirected to kind of just through your own experience to see, to see it differently. And I, and I love that your book does explore that relationship between these domestic animals and, and like your poem about the boar. And, and I was thinking about when I was reading this because <laughs> I mean, it's not wild at all what I did. I went to a farm outside of Philadelphia to get ice cream and. And I just started walking around, looking at goats, cows, pigs, whatever. And I thought about the initial reaction that I was having was I instantly was aware of my similarities with that animal. I saw the cow's eyelashes, the skin strapped over the shoulders, the the pupils of the goat, although different, you know, similar. And then and then the pigs started acting a certain way that I felt very suddenly, oh, I am different. And there was a constant exchange of of familiarity and seeing myself in the animals while also seeing that indifference towards me in a way uh, that 
that these animals kind of mock our vanity instantly in ways that are so profound. It's really amazing. Um, yeah. I think uh, the next poem I would love for you to read would be uh, White Fur. Sure. And uh, if there's anything you want to say about it before you read it, feel free to, or just go ahead and dig in. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just read it. White Fur. In the town of my childhood, little of note ever happened. So when the albino deer was found drowned in the slough, having been driven onto the punky ice by dogs, the game warden brought the dead beast to the school. I might have been seven or maybe six years old. I suppose we were made to line up, since that is how we were moved from place to place and were directed out the industrial doors to admire the animal sprawled in the back of a truck. We gathered around it, its whiteness a world bled of distinction, its eyes pink and drying in the prairie air. We were told we could touch it, and these many years since that March day, I can still see my hand, pink and small, buried into the white fur of the buck's neck crackling with static, and coming to life with the electric surge that animates all things. Later, the buck would be mounted and placed in a glass case in the bank, which is where the town kept things that were precious. Behind it, the art teacher rendered the bluffs and oils with the fussy hand of a miniaturist, and the buck remains there today in perpetual imitation of itself. Oh man, that is so amazing. I just can't, I, that, the line where you're like the game warden brought the dead beast to the school. It's like, hey kids, look what we found. You know, like, <laughs> I, like that, I think that that's, <laughs> like that, that's that, the first that, impulse. That, that, <laughs> yes, but that's the, that's the impulse that, uh, but I, I have to say that this is so part of my experience growing up that of course it. that's what happens and the teachers thought this was a great thing and yeah. <laughs> took us all outside to go see it you know there was no um it wouldn't yeah it wasn't weird or anything it was like hey look not <laughs> at all not at all i mean this is how you know this this is deer hunting we used to get days off of school for deer hunting that's amazing. I mean, it, was, it was such a big part of yeah you know of uh, the, 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 the kind of rural calendar. Um, so, yeah, it's really because it's almost like brought to the school like this great mythical creature almost. And then that lining up, uh, how does that, where's that line? It's so wonderful. Uh, why can't I see it? Um, Oh yeah, I suppose, I suppose we were made, yeah, made to line up since that is how we were moved from place to place. And there's that idea of being kind of socialized in a way into, and that you're the type of child to reach out, um, and touch this fur and the memory of that. And then the idea that there's this art teacher as a figure. I don't know. It all just, it's a beautifully rendered, a beautifully rendered poem. It really, is and it just and it brings to life the values of that area like like the game warden and the you know the guy in the truck and they're you know not take it somewhere like who we got to show the kids this <laughs> it's just incredible i love yeah. it and it's also uh you know i had this 
I, I do have a fascination with taxidermy. Um, and <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> there was there was a lot of it. You know, there was a lot of it in my life growing up. Um, and it's both. Um, it has a, a there's a quality of it that's kind of kitsch. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's um, but I I I love dioramas. Yeah. I love. Um, those those ways that attempt to try and render and recreate the natural world, um, to, it, it, this attempt to preserve it, and it always falls short. <laughs> you know, it, it always, it's the artificiality of it yeah. that makes it more poignant. Even the most exquisite examples of it that you see at, you know, the Museum of Natural History in yeah. New York or someplace like that. Um, but there's a um, you understand that you're looking at something artificial, that you're looking at artifice, and it it seems to me this very kind of kind of um, kind of primal uh, impulse yeah. that we have to try and preserve this precious thing. Um, whereas Wait, you know the great the great beauty of this animal was when it was alive. Yeah, um, and uh, but. You know, um, there is a sense that it's honoring it at the same time, you know, <laughs> that it's not like yeah. a it's not a gesture of conquering the animal to preserve it, but to honor it in some way, which reminds me, I was just at the uh, the National Zoo in D.C., which was just a fascinating <laughs> experience because many times like the animals just would turn their back on us. Um, yeah. And I would look at the crowd and I just thought like. It's just so fascinating that humans gather to go. There's this defined demarcation, right, between us and the cage or the space they're living in. And, but the excitement just to watch a panda bear cross a grass plain doing nothing, you know, a completely mundane gesture by this animal. And it was breathtaking for some people. And a thousand screens were lifted high above a fence clicking pictures of it. And then other times, uh, I remember a lion just would refuse to look at us. And, you know, and then I started thinking like, oh, it makes me feel like I'm in a cage. <laughs> I don't know. Just I think you are definitely on the right track with this this exchange between us and animals. I think it it goes to the heart of like who we are in so many ways. Um, well, the last they, poem. They define, oh, go ahead. You know, they, they define our humanness um, as well. You know, they uh, I, I think that. Um, you know, you see a panda bear, uh, walking and everyone just, you know, of course we go, we go crazy for this because I I think that this is as it it goes as deep into our humanness as, as it can, you know, our, our, you can imagine the very first, you know, human beings and, um, seeing animals like this and wondering, is it, (laughs) <laughs> dangerous is it yeah. food is it you know is it a god is it yeah. um it comes and goes we see it then they disappear right. um th- they're mysterious to us um even you know even the cat that is sitting on my lap right now is yeah. mysterious yeah. to me and that i don't know what is possibly happening in that little head of hers right um but here she is, you know, she's attached to me and uh, and I to her. And it's a very, 
um, it's both mysterious and and we understand it on certain levels, but it's also mysterious to us. Right. There's a mutual mutability there and, and like complete mystery. It's like uh, the philosopher Nagel's like essay back in, I don't know, I forget when he wrote it, you know, like, what does it feel like to be a bat? You know, <laughs> you'll never know what it feels like to be a bat. And yeah, the idea of Oh, I mean, it does. It's like coll- the animals bring out a kaleidoscope of feelings in us. Um, and I imagine maybe the panda bear walking is, I don't know. I might have been just feeling envy that I couldn't just be doing the same thing. <laughs> but uh, so the last poem um, of the book is Prayer in a Time of Sickness. And it, I read this like so many times. It really knocked Knocked me off my feet. Um, so I'd love to have you read it to send us, send us on our way out of here. Sure. Um, the one thing I would say about it yeah. is that it starts, uh, you know, uh, here in the United States and it, yeah. the, the poem ends in Iceland. I was um, wondering, I was, I, I don't know if I asked you that already. I was like, or when I was, I was actually like working on, on a, a piece about this book. And I was like, this is Iceland, or is it Finland? Or, I, I didn't know, so I'm glad you. Yeah, are. It, yeah, it it ends in Iceland, so that's. Um, and real quick before you start, there is, yeah. I mean, to describe for the listener, there's one, two, three movements to it, um, and the first movement you said distinctly takes place here, and then even at, at summer's end, I traveled north. Yeah, that takes. Yeah, that explains itself. Okay, so whenever you're ready. Sure. Prayer in a Time of Sickness So far I have warded off the worst of things that can happen to a brain and to a body. I have loved myself and the world more than I have loved you, with your unknowable face in the firmament and the world ripe with detail. What is it you wish to teach me? My life has been one of tasks listed and attended materials curried and weeded and laid by. I have been diligent and have done my work. Then a day came when I could not answer the letter of a friend, could not offer my help, read to the end of the sentence. The Phoebe tossed from his nest was broken on vulpine teeth, spirited into the undergrowth in the dark. Then the six fat wrens in their house hung in the arbor disappeared, and their parents stopped their singing. Weeds grew, and I ignored my chores, while the cat worried her tail of its most plumescent fur. I saw my body white as tallow, my face framed by colorless hair, noted my appetites, then put them aside, walked and walked to wear it all away. In the bin, last year's potatoes grew their eyes without benefit of soil or sun, and I spent another night awake and unrested, knitting a cap for a child come too early into the world. What lies on the other side? What do I need to know that will keep me anchored, admired as I am from a distance, an image false as a tin star. I yearned to be cast up on an Arctic island, bare of trees, populated by the recalcitrant and their flocculent half-wild beasts. 
the air dry and howling, cliffs exposed, the wind stirring its cauldron of birds. You have written each of my days into your illumined book, though I believe this portion will remain unread, a page torn out and stuffed into a crack to keep out the winter damp. I was built by the love of my mother, then let go. She is now old and sleeps much of the day like a cat, eats small meals in her chair, bakes for funerals, or dusts the small museum visited only by accident. And so she serves the ghosts of our town and does not believe in you at all. At summer's end, I traveled north, crossed the sea to the salted rim of the Arctic. From a rented room, I watched revelers wend in arcs bound by the corrugated street, breakfasted on liver paste and beets, rode tinted in the light of a city bus as it ferried me to the national attractions, a heroic past reconstructed in wax, diorama of a CRS wearing catskin gloves, dining on the hearts of dogs, spidery manuscripts chilled under glass, and the rusted nails and altarpieces standing in for an architecture long effaced by the wind's hand. A young man named for a god of fucking wrote his palomino next to my dun. His face was chapped, and his hair was combed by the wind from underneath a helmet of foam. We passed the named steadings, roofed in turf, the pyramids of hay, while our horses muscled like athletes on paths cut through knee-high grass, over lava and hillcrest, past geyser and sulfurous marsh, horned sheep wandering wild through wind and rain. Hours went by and no one spoke, as our animals huffed and pushed against the reins. My thighs tightened on my gelding's furred back. Hands learned his mouth like that of a husband. Your hold on this island is tenuous, broken as it is by the core of the earth, seeping its sulfurous reek and sanding the air with ash. The inhabitants live amongst the greatest powers visible to their water and ice-colored eyes. You are maddening abstraction. You, the triangulator, the great confuser. Take note. For centuries, this populace huddled in the earth-walled halls, smeared black butter on dried fish, spun wool in the dark, washed their hair in urine, and fermented their meat in whey. How could you ever conquer a land that didn't know bread? You have left me here to wander, far from friends, my family shuffling about their small farm, your absent gaze pressing them toward the grave, the night numbing me to the evident good I might do or understand or receive. There is a bruise on my brain that does not heal, nor does it spread, walled in as it is by pills. Your name is nowhere to be found in my future, treeless and tasting of salt. Here I stand at the estuary, my horse cropping grass, no sounds of men save the one next to me as he pairs dried mutton with a knife. 
East conduct their exercises nearby. The tide's green hair recedes, pulled backward by the blue-skinned moon. The wind lifts, sun flickers, guillemots trim the horizon with their wings. As your great thumb pushes against my lips and you click the snaffle past my teeth. Mark Wonderlich, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.